from KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Religion for Life. I'm John Chuck. But obviously there is no one all-encompassing answer about what you can believe in if you are an atheist. You believe in nothing or nothing of that kind. You may believe in yourself, you may believe in knowledge, you may believe in poetry. What do we believe in after the death of God? That's the question posed by Peter Watson. He is the author of The Age of Atheists, How We Have Sought to Live Since the Death of God. Once we finally admit that there is no divine supernatural being giving us meaning, how do we find our meaning? Peter Watson explores the history of atheism from Nietzsche to Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and beyond, exploring how people have had the courage to discover what it means to love life when there is no afterlife, to discover what is valuable, what is moral, what is true, what is good, the ups and downs of atheism, of life after God, is explored in this magnificent history by Peter Watson. Peter Watson was educated at the universities of Durham, London, and Rome. He's an intellectual historian, a journalist, and the author of 17 books, including The German Genius, The Medici Conspiracy, and The Great Divide. He's written for the Sunday Times, The New York Times, The Observer, and The Spectator. He lives in London, and he's with me via Skype from London. Welcome, Peter, to Religion for Life. Uh, Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Your book is a history, a history of atheism. And to begin, can you kind of give us an overview uh, how you have told the story? Well, um, it's really modern atheism uh, in the sense that I begin with Friedrich Nietzsche in Germany. And I begin there because although atheism had been growing, um, I mean, there have always been people who don't, don't believe in God, but not in any real numbers. And Nietzsche really caught the, the mood of the times, I think. I mean, he wrote his books in the eight, that I referred to in the 1880s, by which time people had had chance to assimilate the implications of Darwin. And in fact, the Germans uh, assimilated uh, Darwin much before the British did or the Americans, or the French. Um, and so it was then, and about then, that um, Europe became particularly secularized in any numbers. And until that point, you had a, cu- a curious crossover period when many of the geologists and anthropologists of the day, although they their findings disproved the sort of chronology of the earth, the origins of the earth as depicted in the Bible. That really didn't do anything to shake their faith. I mean, people like Adam Sedgwick, uh, who knew that the, the earth had to be much older than it said in the Bible, he remained very religious. But it was about the, in the 1880s when many scientists started to lose their faith. And so it's that it's only then really that you can say that atheists existed in any numbers for there to be an age of atheists, which is the title of the book. And so I come forward from there and I look at what uh, philosophers, scientists, um, artists, 
uh, had to say about how they could live uh, without God. Playwrights, uh, even choreographers, all began to model their work uh, on the idea that uh, there is no God. Well, the age of atheists, uh, as you write, begins, in a sense, with Nietzsche. Uh, what, what did he see, and, and why was he so influential? Well, he was influential because of his writing style, which was both very beautiful in the original German and very provocative even in translation. And he wrote in an, an aphoristic style with short, pithy sentences that everybody could get to grips with, whether you were a professional philosopher or an ordinary woman in the street or, or whatever. And he just said, basically, look, all there is is this life. And uh, we've been misled for centuries by religion to think that there's something else, there's something that comes after. And uh, the sooner you realize that all there is is this life, the more of an enjoyable and rewarding and fulfilling time uh, you will have. And you've got to, we've got to get used to it. And that uh, only by grasping very firmly that there is no afterlife, there is no superior power, there is nothing supernatural. Can you actually get to grips with having, making the most of your life on this earth? And uh, it was this style. I mean, now when you say it 130 years afterwards, uh, you know, we've all grown up, a lot of us have grown up with this thinking, but at the time he was so certain, so pithy, so pungent, uh, that people... Uh, responded to it, and in late 19th century Germany, they had Nietzsche evenings in which people would uh, come, and uh, Nietzsche was very fond of music, so there would be some music, Germany being a very musical country, and they would have Nietzsche evenings in which they would discuss all these issues, and there was a Nietzsche youth movement, and so forth, uh, and this was how first the atheism uh, took off, uh, in a kind of, um, what would you say, it was almost like a Nietzsche cult. Uh, he wasn't made out to be God because obviously that couldn't happen, but uh, it, all, uh, uh, it all followed on from that. And uh, many people thought that this was absolutely dreadful, frightening, um, irresponsible, and wrong-headed. Uh, and this carried on right up until the First World War, when if you, I, mean, I have a chapter on this in my book, many people uh, blamed Nietzsche for the First World War because they felt that his nihilism, that there was actually nothing superior, no God, his nihilism, uh, just meant, meant that people were free to do anything, to have any kinds of morals, and that the, he also said that you have to be strong, you have to overcome weakness, the strong will inherit the earth, because they are the only people who uh, can make things happen when uh, there's no religion. And in fact, uh, in the First World War, special editions, especially strong editions, and I say strong, I mean physically strong, made of strong materials, were made for the German army. And uh, soldiers went into battle with copies of the Bible, those who were religious, and copies of Nietzsche's writings, those who weren't. And many of the French and English uh, opponents 
of, of Germans thought this was awful and blamed Nietzsche for a changing attitude, for the fact that uh, the Germans uh, were a kind of Nietzsche race of, of supermen and uh, were trying to be supermen and to impose their will uh, on everybody else. Because this was another of uh, Nietzsche's uh, uh, aphorisms or sayings or feelings was that you... Uh, you had to be strong. You had to lift yourself above your everyday abilities. And only in this way could you taste the higher things in life. Nothing supernatural, but that but only by raising your abilities, raising your appetites, raising your ambitions, could you get the most out of life. And this is the way to, the way to lead your life. And, and, of course, this also led, in a sense, to uh, the Communist Party, the League of Militant Atheists. Uh, would that be a, a similar mood or motivation there, the idea of the will to power? Yes, absolutely. There, uh, um, this has come to, to light a lot recently, that um, in, um, in Soviet Russia, uh, Nietzsche was very much a favorite of many of the philosophers, uh, including Lenin, and including Stalin, who gave themselves, you know, strong, strong names. I mean, they they had sort of like Stalin was is not his real name. It was it's a name that means steel and strong and hard. And this is a very uh, Nietzschean idea. And all through the um, early years, or through the 1920s, until the ni- early 1930s, anyway, in communist uh, Soviet Russia, uh, Nietzsche was one of the prophets uh, because uh, he taught people to be strong, he uh, taught people to eschew God, and this suited the the Marxists, um, who of course were based on the idea of Marx that religion is the opiate of the people, and all this went together in a nice, steamy, heady mix, um, which, it has to be said, um, created uh, some very good art, but also some terrible, terrible uh, crimes. I mean, there are stories of uh, people uh, being thrown out of helicopters, early helicopters and airplanes, uh, because they were religious, and uh, people said, well, if you can fly to heaven, you can fly from here. And they were just thrown out of airplanes. Uh, and this was just the, the atheists rubbing the, the, the heel uh, in the faces of of religious people, and some terrible uh, crimes were carried out. Of course, Nietzsche, by this time, we should say, was long dead, um, but uh, he was, you're quite right, he was taken up by the Soviets, the early Soviets. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Peter Watson. He's the author of The Age of Atheists, How We Have Sought to Live Since the death of God. And atheism, well, kind of had to evolve. And, and I wonder if uh, if the age of atheism is, is a long process of, of grieving the death of God, denial, anger, sadness, seeking a substitute, acceptance. Is, would, would that be a, a metaphor that might fit? Um, various people, I mean, Julian Barnes, uh, the English author, said quite nicely, you know, God is dead, but I miss him. Um and so some people have said things like that. I think a lot of people have, have really more like taken the attitude, uh, good riddance, really. Ah. We're better off uh, without it, uh, the idea of, of God. Um, and the only real difficulty I came across, I think, and um, I should just say that in Britain, 
my book is called The Age of Nothing, hmm. uh, as it's uh, meaning that we have nothing to believe in. And this seems to me to be the, the real problem with atheism, um, that uh, people ask me, you know, what is your book about and what can we believe in? And uh, my argument is that we can believe in nothing. And this is very difficult for many people. I, I do admit uh, that there is a need to believe in many people. Um, and in my survey of poets and novelists and philosophers and scientists, um, each of them comes up with their own feelings um, about what to believe in. Um, and although I try to put some order into this, uh, it has to be said that a lot of these answers are very individuated, individualistic, um, and people really have to find their own way. Um, and I have, what I've really done in my book is just to show people the way others have found. And uh, there is a good deal of overlap, but obviously there is no one all-encompassing answer about what you can believe in if you are an atheist. You believe in nothing, or nothing of that kind. You may believe in yourself, you may believe in knowledge, you may believe in poetry. I mean, I give a, mm -hmm. a lot of space in my book to poetry, because I think the most successful poetry does push the bounds of our experience further. Yeah, let's turn um, to poetry for a second. You begin with one of your chapters with a quote from Wallace Stevens, uh, the poet becomes the priest of the invisible. Uh, what was the significance of the poet and poetry after the death of God? Yes, well, I think that um, the poets I concentrate on are Stephen George in Germany, Wallace Stevens, as you uh, quite rightly um, say, Elizabeth Bishop, who I think is a wonderful American atheistic uh, poet. And my point is that poetry at its best, Rilke is another case in point, extends the bounds of our consciousness. And Seamus Heaney, the Irish uh, Nobel Prize winning poet, said that this, this really is the point of poetry, to extend our experience. And a, a successful poem it seems to me a poet has a thought that you have almost had uh, and you wish you'd had. And when you read it, you recognize it and you think, ah, that's wonderful. Life is a little bit bigger for me having read that and for that poet having um, written it. I mean, I, give, I quote the case of W.H. Auden in a lovely couplet in which he says, if equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Mm. And I defy anybody not to be moved mm -hmm. or warmed uh, by that, that I think it enlarges. For the moment, I mean, these things, poetry dissipates, though it, it does stay with you, uh, you know, longer or shorter. And, uh, you know, you may remember I, I quote Richard Rorty, the American mm -hmm. philosopher, who was a fervent atheist. And then later in his life, he was diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. And a few months later, when he had not that long to live, he was in the kitchen 
with his son and his cousin, who was a priest. And they were, as I say, they were having a cup of coffee, and his son said, well, Dad, um, you know, you're a world-famous philosopher. Has philosophy been of any use to you since um, you were diagnosed uh, with terminal cancer? And Richard Rorty said, no, it hasn't. And the cousin, who was a priest, said, has religion been of any use or consolation? And he said, no, it hasn't. And his son said, well, is anything been of any use? And he said, yes, poetry. Hmm. He said, even hoary chestnuts, particularly poetry that scans and rhymes, has a, a warming influence on my experience. And I wish that in my life I'd known more poetry. Because the best poetry just takes us further and further away from the beasts and the animals. And uh, it's an act, poetry is an act of sharing the most precious feelings between human beings. And that, he thought, is really the only the ultimate feeling that you can have. He didn't call it a religious feeling, but it is a religious-like feeling. And he felt that that's really the most that is available to us in a post-religious world. Peter Watson is my guest on Religion for Life. He's the author of The Age of Atheists, How We Have Sought to Live Since the Death of God, uh, and Poetry and Art. On the cover of your book is a painting by uh, Seurat, uh, A Sunday Afternoon. Uh, tell us about that painting. Um, you say it, uh, that uh, he captures the heroism of everyday life, and I, I found that theme kind of throughout your book. Yes, uh, that is a theme. I mean, the, the painting uh, is, if people remember it, it's of a, a scene of a park, a Sunday afternoon in a park uh, in the suburb of, of Paris. It's very, very sunny, and to the left there's a lake, and in the middle there are some parkland woods, and on the right there is a very elegant couple dressed in black and grey. And my interpretation of this is that they have just been to church, it being Sunday, mm-hmm. and they are surveying um, everybody else in the park. And what is going on in the park, first and foremost, is that people are in the park and not at church. Um, they're all enjoying themselves, uh, walking the dog, sailing, swimming, having a picnic. Most of them, it should be said, have their backs turned to the religious couple. They've turned away. And secondly, uh, most of them are doing activities either on their own or in very small groups. What Shura is saying here is that the, the communal life of religion has gone, and we're now in a very pleasant but very sunny, um, it's summer, a very sunny um, world, but we're all locked into our own pleasures. And so he's asking, is this the way to go? Is this the way to all be individualistic? Is happiness and fulfillment available um, in a way uh, where we're all by ourselves rather than the more communal experience of church or does this individual thing only last on Sundays you know tomorrow on Monday you know, work life starts again and uh, he's really asking the question and I thought it really summed up 
the sort of predicament that I've been exploring in my book very well, you know, as well as being a very beautiful picture. Yes, yes. I, I want to take a turn to um, modern theology, or so, so what, like uh, the God is dead theologians like Thomas Altizer or Harvey Cox in his book The Secular City. Theologians seem to be scrambling when God is no longer has a home or a job. Um, is, is there much of a future uh, in redefining God? I don't think so. Um, I don't see where we can go with mm-hmm. that. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, our conversation is taking place, as I'm sure you and your readers know, at a time when, in fact, the world is becoming more religious, not less. Right. Be- because most of the poorer countries are becoming more religious, because in many cases, one has to say this, you know, religion becomes a substitute. You know, mm-hmm. people are promised the next world, because this world is so terrible. But in Western Europe, particularly in Britain, and now increasingly in the United States, in the successful, materially successful countries of the world, people are becoming less religious. So two things are going on at the same time. Um, But I think that the Harvey Coxes and so forth, uh, they appeal more to people are becoming more religious rather rather than less. And I, I don't really see... Uh, I think all the attempts to redefine God, uh, you know, like to say that he's in nature or he's everywhere or whatever, personally, I just don't think that works. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the people I've written about in my book think that it works either, because we just know too much about the heavens, uh, and the old idea of God uh, being somewhere on a cloud, you know, was long since gone. And in many ways, people can only think about God without thinking too closely about his real nature, or her real nature, or its uh, real nature. And it boils down to the mystery, does it not? It seems to me that it's related to two words. Which are the, the two mysteries that remain, uh, which is that those two words are before and beyond. Mm. What happened before the Big Bang, that is still a mystery. And however big and infinite the universe is, we don't really understand the word uni- infinite because we always think of something beyond it. Mm-hmm. We can't think of the limit. And I like, you referred earlier to Wallace Stevens. I like his idea. He said, oh, the infinite, that's a poetic idea, not a scientific idea. And I think that's a lovely thing to say. Um, uh, but it doesn't really clear up the mystery. It just shifts it, it, shifts it along. Mystery is, uh, God is the name we give to the mystery, even now, it seems to me. Hmm. Yes. Uh, you begin um, and end with Salman Rushdie, uh, the fatwa and the dangers yeah. of fundamentalism. Uh, and you also write about saner voices, those who don't mind that God is dead. Well, what do you think about these these two voices and fundamentalism and, and whatnot? Well, what can one say? I yeah. mean, fundamentalism is just terrible, and it's born of amazing ignorance. Um, and uh, what we're seeing, it seems to me, quite obviously, in a lot around the world, is is um, acts of revenge. Um, is it, you know we're seeing political Islam, and basically, Islam has failed. 
it's failed its people, it's failed to explain the world. Um, you know, Christianity, you know, without being too prejudiced about this, Christianity led to democracy, Christianity led to science, um, Christianity uh, led to capitalism. Christianity was a very, very productive faith, even if, um, you know, people like me no longer believe mm -hmm. in, in, in the Christian idea of God. It was nonetheless an amazingly productive faith. And, you know, Buddhism and Shintoism and Confucianism, you know, have their adherents, but they have not proved anywhere near as profitable to the human race as have Judeo-Christianity. Whereas Islam had a brief flowering and is now uh, in, you know, I, I believe this is a, a, a late, terrible flowering of Islam. And then within 100 years, it will be dead because it has nothing to tell us. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, if you read the Quran, it is a book of homilies with which it is very difficult to disagree uh, because they're so general as to be not banal but incontrovertible and we can all share them, but it doesn't take us anywhere. It, 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 Islam has not led us into anything. And so it's as if Islam, to my mind, is in sort of one great dangerous sulk. Oh, you, you know, the rest of the world's you know, going on and doing well and so forth and here we are stuck uh, in, the, in the Middle East and you know, beheading people and raping people I mean what a, you know we're back to nihilism uh, you know th this is a very nihilistic view of religion and how did the way to get many converts and of course it's getting some uh, in the form of religious pathology I think yeah, and then, of course, Christian fundamentalism uh, also becoming very bizarre. Um, so I wonder if these, all of these fundamentalisms are, are kind of a last gasp <laughs> before humanity finally accepts really the death of, of its pre-modern era, its superstitions, and, and finds a way to acceptance of life as it is. Well, what we see, we mentioned it earlier with these two things going on, um, the, the, the greatest danger to religion is prosperity. Mm. Um, when people become prosperous, they have less and less need of the succor and support that is offered uh, by religion. And so religion will die when we get world prosperity. Now, you may say that's you know, a long way off, and I, I wouldn't dis disagree with you, uh, but that seems to me to be the crucial dynamic that uh, prosperity and secularity and secularism go go hand in hand, um, and uh, you, if, you, if you look at the United Nations figures, you know world poverty has, despite everything that's happened, all the terrible things that's happened, world poverty has been halved over the last mm -hmm. thirty or forty. Years and we now no longer talk about the third world because they joined the first world and the second world collapsed. Um, so uh, uh, you know, but maybe we're still saying what I've just said: that poverty has been hard. Maybe people are still below the poverty line, still unhappy, and still have the need for the sucker provided by by religion. But that is the dynamic that I see. Uh, we are just out of time. Peter Watson is my guest with a fascinating book, uh, The Age of Atheists, How We Have Sought to Live uh, Since the Death of God. Uh, thank you for your book, and thank you for being with me today. Thank you. Not at all.
You've been listening to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. You can find links to this podcast at religionforlife.com. Find Religion for Life on iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher, your favorite podcast receiving device. And Religion for Life um, is great for a walk, for a commute, for a bicycle ride. So uh, let me know if you have questions, ideas for guests. Email me at religionforlife at hotmail.com. Religion for Life is 29 minutes and free to radio stations. Religion for Life is heard on WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, and produced by KBOO Portland. Ooh, wow.